at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Curiosity Habit and today I'm very excited to have a conversation with another scientist from CRI and also a person who I regard as one of my friends too, Dr. Mark Goldschmidt. Welcome Mark. Thank you. So for some of you who don't know Mark, Mark does a lot of research on clinical supervision and sociomateriality, I believe. And we'll get into those ideas later, but I guess the first question as I always do is what I'm curious about is what brought you into medical education? What was that key insight or story that made you think, oh, there might, there might be an interesting place for me here? It's an interesting question, and it probably depends how far back you want me to go, how I answer that one. Whenever I think about my entry to medical education, I think it more broadly than my entry into medical education as a researcher. I think as a medical student, I was one of those people who always sat in class and felt, surely we can do this better than we're doing now. And at that time, it was really, surely we could teach this better. <clears throat> there must be research and pedagogical knowledge out there that exists to do something better than just having 180 students sit in a class and just receive information. Now, this is back in the 90s, early 90s. And I think that really has defined my entire path in medical education. Um, so back then, it was the question of, surely we can do this better, meaning the teaching and learning process. Later, I finished my residency and went on and did a master's in health professional education back in the early 2000s. And at that time, I was actually still fascinated by this piece. Surely we can do this better. But of course, with my increased experience, it was surely we could teach better in clinical settings. And I began at that point to really grapple with um, the balance of what was known of how we could do things better. And in particular, in clinical contexts where we have both learners and clinical practice happening at the same time. And while there was a lot of literature that existed around clinical reasoning and teaching, I didn't feel it adequately handled the challenges that we face in clinical practices. <clears throat> and so again, um, in that early career, I was faced with, surely we could do this better. But at that point, and now we're getting into kind of mid 2000s, the do what better began to lead me to some questions. And the questions became, Things like, how do we balance both teaching and patient care? How do we navigate the tensions of practice of safety? And how do we grapple with the complexity of what we do in patient care and in teaching? When what I felt the literature at the time was doing was a lot of oversimplification. That I think <laughs> along my entire path has defined things. Surely we can do this better. 
Yeah. And then um, one of the things that I'm not sure many people know about is like you work behind the scenes with games before CRI, what CRI was before it was CRI. Uh, and I really want to have your take on that because you were the person behind the whole idea. When I first came to Western, which is where I work, <clears throat> obviously, um, when I finished my master's degree, I began to look, where's the community of practice? Having read sufficiently in the kind of education research journals and um, <clears throat> practice change and stuff on organizational change, I, I very quickly realized that at least at the center where I was working, um, it was a very siloed experience to do anything in medical education. I was really blessed to have a mentor, Wayne Weston, um, when I first started out. Um, and um, he and I did a ton of faculty development work together. But increasingly, um, there was this gap that for me and for I think others who were like me would get filled when you'd go to a conference, like the Canadian Conference on Medical Education <clears throat> once a year, you'd get this fill of being surrounded by like-minded individuals and being able to have those rich, deep conversations about the things you are passionate about. How can we do this better? <laughs> and, and I wanted to have that at home. I wanted to not have it be a once or twice a year thing when I went to a conference. And to start with, I had a super supportive department chair, um, David Hollenby, who actually provided some startup funding for us to create this Group for the Advancement and Advocacy of Medical Education Scholarship Games. And, you know, we'd use the funds to um, bring in external speakers, to bring in some occasional mentors who could meet with researchers and talk with them about their research work, and also to just meet regularly and do things like journal clubs, some of the stuff that we do in our symposium, you know, on the basis around kind of just talking, talking education. Um, and took us about five years of doing that for the Dean and then um, Carol Herbert at the time and my department chair um, to be sold on the notion that maybe we need something more. <clears throat> we had, um, we did a study as part of games to ask the question, what is happening with all the folks who finish their masters in medical education? And those who are interested in health professions education, what are they doing? And what we found is that for the most part, people would finish their degree and get immediately sucked into an administrative leadership position, program director, chair of the evaluation committee and other such work. No one was doing education research. And when you probed more deeply around that, it was this, I did the master's degree and I learned how complicated it is to do the research. And now I have no mentorship to do it. And that's how we founded CERI. Our Center for Education Research and Innovation really was um, started because of this, this epiphany that for my dean <clears throat> at the time was, ah, I had no idea that that's what was happening. I just assumed if we got all these folks in master's degree, they would actually start doing some of the discovery work in education and it wasn't happening. Um, and around that same time, we had um, brought in as part of the games um, Lorelai Lingard to, to mentor a group of us to do research. And Chris Watling was part of that, as were Wael Hadera and some other folks um, who have become, you know, some of the mainstay folks at CRI. And through those ongoing conversations and the generosity of colleagues um, 
particularly at the Wilson Center, so Glenn Regeer and Lorelei, who um, helped us to begin to think of what a center could actually do for, for us. Um, and that's, so that's, that's how we got started. <clears throat> I always find fascinating that story because it's kind of getting at the roots of what was the spark of CRI. And one thing that I have admired of you is like your willingness to engage different avenues, like teaching, um, quality improvement, leadership, research, and you have a family with four kids. Like, I don't know how you do it. So when, we, when it comes to your own research, when you decided to do a PhD and narrowing down the topic, what was the turning point in your career that made you realize, hmm, maybe I should just spend more time here as a, as a scientist and develop myself as a scientist? And how did you go to choosing that particular topic of your research? It's a great question. <clears throat> and I'm thinking back to try to think <laughs> kind of what, what drove that. Um, I think for me, I always want to do the research. As, as a general internist in my clinical world, I've always been fascinated by, you know, clinical practice, the complexity of clinical practice and clinical reasoning. And all of the research work I read felt like this gross oversimplification of what happens out in the real world. These controlled studies of learning with, you know, undergraduate students or medical students and comparing medical students and, you know, residents <clears throat> to experts and trying to understand what is practice, but with a focus almost always on diagnosis. And for someone who is so interested in um, communication, compassion and care, thinking about the complexity of how you support patients to grapple with the difficulties of multiple medical problems all at once, it always felt like it just fell short for me. And so I was actually well before CERI came to be, I was trying to you know, meet with different people and talk about my ideas for how we could do a study. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find actually a way to do a study that, that would, would capture that, that richness that I know happens out in clinical practice. And then I had an epiphany moment <clears throat> and I discovered rhetorical genre theory. And although I'd read a lot of Lorelei's work prior to that, and I was fascinated by it, I'd never thought about it as a way of studying the types of things that I was interested in clinical practice. <clears throat> but um, I, I, was, I actually took in a, one of those um, ateliers at the Wilson Center um, on qualitative methods. And by the end of the work, the end of the week, after um, people kept asking me, but what do you really care about? What do you really want to study? <laughs> I said, I hate the idea of the chief complaint in the medical history. And I hate the idea of the history of present illness, singular. Both of these are singularities. And while they are important in trying to hone in the focus of an encounter, in my world, I don't have a single chief complaint. And often the patients themselves aren't even aware of all of the complexity of the problems that they're trying to grapple with. They have a symptom, but the symptoms are often multifactorial. And so I said, you know, it's problematic that our genre <laughs> of documentation, which drives how we actually teach learners to communicate with patients and have encounters, are, are, are actually pushing them to think in ways that I don't think experts do when they see their patients. And that got me started down this path 
Well, if the problem is a genre, what else could we learn from that? What else could we learn from thinking about the way that the communication practice of case review, of documentation, how do all of those things shape actually what we do and learn practice is? And to me, that, that really captures that flavor of we can surely do this better. And I mean, both patient care, if you could change the genre, if you could change the way you do it, then you actually might improve the care. And if you could do it right, you actually change the learning. And this was this big epiphany moment for me, not just the theory itself, but also the possibility that you can change things, but not by going and lecturing or creating a teaching session or a faculty development session, but by actually changing materials. So it was really a <clears throat> foreshadowing of what was to come in my own research, which was this, you know, this broader depth into what is, you know, people are talking about as sociomateriality um, and that umbrella of, of you know, this, this interaction between social and material and how those shape practice. But really it started with, with this epiphany moment of rhetorical genre theory. And then in terms of actually doing a PhD, you know, 10 years into my career, <clears throat> that was just like, you know, wonderful. <laughs> it was a wonderful opportunity to step away from actually leadership <clears throat> and committees and have an excuse to do so that others could, would say was legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and looking back, I wouldn't do a thing different. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it was great doing it. I learned so much during that PhD, but it was really an opportunity to just, to have an excuse to read and read and read some more without feeling guilty that I was taking time from doing meaningful work. Right. And one of the things that you just mentioned that I'm always curious about is like, in addition to the theory that kind of drove, drove you into the topic, is also the, the methods and the methodologies you're using. And who was the person who kind of planted the seed about this ethnographic approach to research that you do and sociomateriality? Is there a story behind? Um, I was actually really um, influenced at that stage when I started to move <clears throat> um, by the work of Tara Fenwick. And we had brought her down to the center to give a keynote address for, um, I think, our one of our research days. And then she stuck around and met with folks and she and I forged quite a relationship <clears throat> over that time, which continues to today. I mean, I just consider Tara to be absolutely brilliant. Um, and she, she rocked my world a second time. <clears throat> you know, genre theory really opened up this whole new way of thinking about stuff that allowed me an entry to do the type of research I wanted to do, but had no idea could be done in that way. And then Tara just took me one more step where it was this notion that maybe human agency isn't the only thing that's shaping what's happening. And at that time, I was kind of quite, quite taken by, you know, sociocultural theories, <clears throat> but always felt that they, they were a little inadequate for, for grappling with this complexity. And I think genres to me fall nicely under sociomateriality theory as well. The idea that, you know, a way of communicating that is patterned, that is repeated, and that we all begin to learn shaping us, <clears throat> It was very easy to believe other things were shaping us as well. Physical spaces, policies, um, and culture still encompassed in it. So it just opened things up really nicely. Um, and I have to admit, you know, if you go back even to high school for me, 
you always had to just have one trigger word that would get me to turn, like the lights would turn on, the hamster wheel would start running. And someone would just have to say something that involved, this is kind of complicated or challenging. And the second someone said, oh, complicated or challenging, I was like, oh, <clears throat> something to actually play with that would be interesting, that would kind of stimulate, <laughs> stimulate some interesting new thinking. Um, and sociomateriality is totally one of those mind things where it just kind of like, it hits you as just like, whoa, this is complex. There's nothing straightforward about this. And I'm always attracted to things that feel that they force you to grapple in ways that don't oversimplify. So, so it, it just was, I think, a beautiful natural fit. That's very cool. And among those uh, moments of thinking, because I can tell you think a lot about what you want to do, was there a thing or were there things that you thought you were going to do in your research career that you ended up not doing or vice versa that you ended up doing, but I never thought that you were going to do? I'm not sure... I at any stage could have predicted the next stage. Like I'm not sure I would have ever predicted doing a PhD um, <clears throat> after I started in medical education. Um, but once I started on the research path, I think just about every study has followed the other one in some way building on them. I often have said to people that while every study I do is not constructivist grounded theory, I think my entire program of research is a form of constructivist grounded theory in that I'm constantly trying to build a bigger understanding of practice as a phenomena where learners are involved, but practice as a phenomena. And each study really just iterates <laughs> on the last set of data collection and builds on it. Um, my research, I think, is much more interesting when looked at as an assemblage of studies that all shape different pieces of the puzzle. So I don't think I could have ever predicted any given study in advance of recognizing it was another piece of the puzzle I didn't understand. <clears throat> um, I've been really blessed to have the privilege to kind of follow my curiosity, <laughs> to follow the things that That, that, that would help to understand how can we do this better. Um, so I'm not sure I would say there's any surprises, but partly because I don't think I ever planned out, you know, a series <laughs> of things in advance quite in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think um, in that umbrella of not being able to anticipate, like we all go through situations that make us go, oh, wow, that was a lesson that I have to keep for me. Um, can you share with us maybe one or two situations that you experienced that you thought that has given me a lesson that I will continue to use in my research career? That's a great question and a really difficult one to answer, I think. But perhaps for me, the best answer would be my insights around interviewing and the need for observational research in the type of work that I do. I had initially, <clears throat> when I started doing the PhD work, um, been working with a lot of people and particularly Lorelai, who is so influential to so many of us, um, 
with, with constructivist grounded theory, which traditionally has done so much work that is really interview based. But as I did it, I, I, I had to grapple with what um, Chris Argyris talks about as the difference between espoused and enacted beliefs. And I think this is a lesson that has stayed with me from <clears throat> really <laughs> the beginning of kind of getting into research where I grappled with what I was worried about was too many interviews that got at people's espoused beliefs about themselves, what they, what they think they do, but not necessarily reflective of what actually happens in the real world. Some of us happen to be really good at having insight into both like who we are and how we think and how it shapes what we do. But there's a lot of research that shows experts can always tell you how they came to something, whether it's true or not though, <laughs> is different. We always have an explanation, but sometimes you walk in a room and you just look at a patient and you go, oh, <clears throat> and how did you make that oh moment? I don't know, but, but I don't know how I make those oh moments either at times. When you look at actual practice, um, particularly as you're thinking about things like sociomateriality, there's this challenge of, of whether or not people can actually recognize what is agentically shaping that practice. And so I think my early lesson that has stuck with me is you really need to find ways at getting at practice, how it's enacted, and try to draw insights from that, and less away from asking people what they believe is practice. For me, that has been, I think, a hallmark of all of my research. I observe in practice, and when I actually have interview work, it's always to have people describe something that's happening or that they did <clears throat> without asking them necessarily a ton of questions about why and how. Um, I like to get them to just describe the practice. So for example, um, in clinical teaching, tell me about a typical day, like look back to the past week, what day was the most typical for you? And just tell me what happened. How did things play out? And by listening and understanding that and comparing that across people, you begin to gain insights into one of my, I think, most important areas of research, which is practice variability. I'm interested in how different ways of doing things or the repertoires we develop for doing things and then understanding what are the tensions that are shaping those. And ideally, what I wanna have happen is through my research, make what is invisible visible and therefore subject to debate. So speaking about practice, uh, you are one of the people that we have at the center who are in the front lines in this pandemic and also is a researcher. I was wondering, uh, have you gathered any reflections about things that you could be researched down the road out of this experience of having to navigate your identities as a clinician and a researcher in the midst of this situation? Um. I'm really pleased to report actually that one of my residents who approached me to do some research um, just got a PSI grant to do wow. that research. And That's so awesome. we're already started on doing an exploration around how something like a pandemic um, and particularly working in the front lines for the medical residents begins to shape and change um, their identity and has impact on identity formation. So I think that's one of the studies that I think is, is interesting and in being in the front lines and experiencing 
as well as being able to research it, I think is, is, is really fascinating. <clears throat> uh, but I will have to confess that beyond that study, I feel that the pandemic has put a lot of the type of work I'm interested in on hold. Because one of the things that's happened is it has narrowed practice variability. The stringencies of having to try to maintain safety for everybody and physical distancing has meant that physicians are going less to the bedside. Physicians are doing less teaching. Um, people are congregating less. <clears throat> and so more and more, there's a homogeneity of what is maybe the best we can come up with for now. If this is going to continue, we are going to have to really challenge how we are carrying out practice and education because we, I don't think, can continue with such a narrow repertoire. So if I actually do think about a future research work, it'll be working on innovations to change um, how the, well, to broaden the repertoire of what we're currently doing because it's not adequate to the task. So this is, I imagine, is one of your next curiosities, right? Or do you have any other on the books? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I actually think it's perhaps part of that broader theme. Um, the broader theme is tensions in practice and how we navigate them. That has been part of the theme that I've been looking at for quite some time. Um, and uh, one of my PhD students, uh, Lena, has a really cool short grant that we're working on um, related to this notion of time space. And the idea is if you think about time and space as being a, a unit of itself that can be zoomed in on to allow us to explore practice variability, then it allows us to not think about necessarily just trying to compare like a teaching practice, but rather to say, hey, in the morning, teams do this activity, whatever activity X is. And we call that activity a time space. So where do they do it? And what is the variability in the space used and the time used? Where do they focus their time? <clears throat> do they focus it more on one thing or the other? And I think this idea, when you combine it with tensions in practice, allows us to again uncover and make visible the types of things that I think need to be more debated. As hospitals under pressures, even before COVID, in fact, especially before COVID, under pressures to just move patients through, navigate with innovations to increase efficiency. What happens to teaching practice? What innovations or repertoires do people have that mitigate against those? And which are the ones where they make decisions, well, it's A or B, but not both. And I'm interested in finding and uncovering the folks who've actually managed to balance those tensions in ways that actually achieve good care and good education. And so I'm going to continue down that path. I still don't think we understand it. And unfortunately, um, I don't think even when we understand it, we've been able to convey it in ways that are effectively leading to meaningful innovation and change in the practice settings themselves. And if I really think about what my biggest curiosity is, it's not the research anymore. It's how do you do the knowledge translation so that in fact you can get uptake of those research ideas into those practice settings. You know, I said at the beginning, I started in medical education by saying, you know, how can we do this better? Or rather, surely we can do this better. 
And increasingly, I understand what it would take to make it better. But I'm not sure I fully understand what it will take to convince others to change. And for me, that is going to be the biggest kind of next challenge that I'm going to try to grapple with. And I haven't fully figured out how to do it yet. Wow, that's fascinating. I'll be looking forward to hear more about it as you go. So to finalize, the, to just to finish up the, the interview, this is something that I'm always uh, personally curious about. Besides methods and theories and mentors and everything that shapes us into the researcher we are, um, there's also the kind of the personal side of who we are. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners one thing that people might not know about you that makes you the researcher you are. That is a really challenging question. And I have no idea what people actually already do know about me. So it makes it hard to know, know what to say. But I will actually try and give you two answers. The first one is, and I think some people know this about me, I do my best thinking in the pool. Whenever I have a challenging piece of writing or thinking to do, if I have to plan a conversation or a study or a grant or an introductory paper, I swim on it. Wow. Now, COVID has really messed that up because I really don't have access to a pool. <clears throat> But if I could get 45 minutes in a pool, I can usually write an entire introduction to a paper. <gasps> I do that have to get out of the pool and actually quickly jot down those ideas because <clears throat> I have crafted brilliant sentences that have been lost after I leave the pool. If only I could audio record in the water as I go, I'd be set. It's amazing oh, wow. how the pattern of just swimming back and forth <clears throat> and then just stroke, 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 sentence construction. Ooh, let me redo that. Repeat it seven times until I got the right sentence. Ah, perfect. That's the introduction sentence. That's going to capture that got it down swimming. <clears throat> wow. I didn't know you have it nailed out as a process. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> When I go to conferences and I'm going to present, I often try to swim that morning before the presentation just to rehearse one more time in my head exactly how I want to craft things and what I want to say. I'm not someone who ever writes out a presentation. I just think about it enough that I feel I could just kind of go on the fly and it works. Um, but swimming, swimming is my thing. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say cooking, to, to be honest with you. But that sounds like a fascinating story. <laughs> I love cooking. I mean, yeah. cooking is the type of thing that I'll do whenever I have free time. It's one of my most fun hobbies is to come up with new recipes to cook and prepare. But it has nothing to do with shaping my research. Whereas swimming has everything to do with actually supporting my career. If I'm stressed, <laughs> if I have something difficult to work through, I can swim and always work it out. Well, I will say that cooking will bring the community part because I have experienced your cooking skills at the center. So that helps <laughs> others. Let's, let's call it that way. Well, hands down, I am always happy. In fact, cooking is so much better with a group. I, don't, I love cooking with people and I love cooking for people and having to be able to sit down and share. Absolutely. <laughs> But it probably doesn't have as profound... Um, an impact on me and who I am and as a researcher and as a person as the really therapeutic touch of the water. <laughs> wow, impressive. Thank you, Mara, for sharing that. I knew it was not an easy question, but I appreciated the effort. Okay, this is the end of the episode. Really appreciated having you, Mark, with us. Uh, 
Thank you everybody for listening and thank you, Mark, for being part of this interview today. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.